Good morning, everyone. Uh, if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to Exodus chapter 4. And if you have one of our Exodus journals, that's on page 20. Uh, if you do not, we have some in the back available to you. Uh, we are in Exodus chapter 4. It is such a privilege to get to study the Word of God with the Church of God and to get to study passages as we work through books of the Bible that you probably wouldn't gravitate to if you were just picking your favorite passages of Scripture to walk through together as a church. And the whole story of Exodus is picking up where Genesis left off, and we see God's great salvation moment in, his, in Israel's history where he redeems his people from their slavery by the blood of the Lamb, and all of it foreshadowing our redemption in Christ Jesus, who is the Lamb of God who saves us from our sins and from the wrath of God. So we're going to jump right in this morning. So I'd ask that if you're physically able that you stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word. And we are going to pick up in verse 18 this morning and we will read through the end of chapter 4. This is the Word of the Lord. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. Jethro said to Moses, go in peace. The Lord said to Moses and Midian, go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. The Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that, he, that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. The Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshiped. Let's bow our heads with them and pray. Father, we praise you for the gift of your holy word. Lord, your servants are listening. Would you come and open our hearts to the seed of your word? I pray that your word would find good soil in us and that we would bear much fruit in trusting you, believing you, that you would come and 
give us a, a greater faith in your power to save, your desire to use us, and that we would glory in your salvation. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. I was reminded this week of a, a pow- the power of a shift in perspective, and that came as we all lost power on Monday. Um, I said we all, those of you who are privileged to live right in this area probably didn't. I lost power for like 11 hours, and it was nothing compared to some of you who lost power for days, which I have a hard time believing. And I was reminded how quickly I can go from a, we'll be fine, to begrudging the hardship of it and feeling entitled to things that I normally take for granted. And I didn't acquire that perspective until I'm kind of like having a self-pity party. My snowblower's broken, so I'm shoveling like crazy, and it just keeps coming down. And I'm like, honestly, Lord, it's getting a little excessive at this point. And, uh, and then Kayla's like, God, thank you so much for all these blessings that we take for granted. And I'm like, mm, that's the right perspective, you know. And I was reminded it's so easy to drift into a self-oriented way of thinking that demands that God give us what we want. And we assume that we know what will be good for us, and so then we question him for not giving it to us in his timing. But we assume that we know what is best, and then when God doesn't act according to our plan or our thinking, then we judge him or begrudge his plan. And another version of this is us believing that he couldn't really love us or really use us because either of who we've been or what we've done, or we just don't believe that he wants to use us. And both of these are inverted versions of the same thing. It's us judging God based on our circumstances or our perception of what is just and right and true. And we have desperate need of a perspective shift, which is what our text does this morning. And I told you guys, there's a, there's a few reasons why this wouldn't be uh, the text that I would choose if we were just picking our favorite passages. Some of them you probably heard. You're reading this section about Moses' wife cutting off her son's foreskin. You're like, who drew the short straw in having to preach this one, right? Um, and in a real way, when I first approached it, I thought, okay, this is a kind of a bridge transition text. We're going from the burning bush passage to Moses in Egypt, and we're just kind of recapping some things in a transition text, so hopefully there's stuff to preach. And then I start studying, and I'm like, man, we probably should have made this like three different messages. So we're going to see in this text many different threads that all weave together into this one tapestry. So sometimes we'll study, and we'll go through different texts, and we'll wait till the very end, and then we'll kind of like peer around at the picture to see what God has been saying usually culminating in Christ. This morning, we're going to look at the threads, and we're going to occasionally turn around and look. So I don't want you to get whiplash when we go. And so this is how it relates to Christ and to Calvary. We just want to go ahead and start by planting one foot there and have a view to him, this entire passage. But uh, this text over and over again emphasizes Moses going back. So he asks to go back to his father-in-law. He gets his father-in-law's blessing. God tells him to go back. It says he went back. So that's the emphasis. And then there are conversations and happenings that go on along the way as he's going back to Egypt. 
And um, when God says to him, because there's a lot of surprises in this text. Um, Moses doesn't give his father-in-law the full reason for why he goes, which seems kind of weird, but he's, he's just like you. He's not giving him the full, like, I'm going because God is calling me. He's like, I want to go see if my people are still alive, which just is weird when, when God had just told him all of these different things. And so you're wondering, like, is this some ancient Israelite phrase for I'm just going to go see how it is with them? I'm going to go see if they're still alive when he knows, in fact, that they are. But he gets this blessing from his father-in-law. And then God appears to him and says, go back to Egypt for all the men who are seeking your life are dead. And before we dive into all these different threads that we see in what follows, you need to know that this is not so much God consoling Moses around his fears He's already done that in assuring him that he would be with him. This is God saying, the exodus is underway. I have begun to deliver my people. And the people that sought your life, who wanted to kill you, are already out of the way. And I I have started this deliverance. Now go. So all of these threads that we'll see in this text will work together to showcase this one point to, to reorient us to the grace of God and give us the shift of perspective that we need. And that is that God works with sovereign grace and power to bring glory to his name and salvation to his children. He works with sovereign grace and power to bring glory to his name and salvation to his people. And the first thread that we'll observe demonstrates the surprising way that he works his salvation. And that is the staff of God. So if you're a note taker, this is kind of like the first header of our time together this morning. There's this subtle statement after all these commands to go back or language around going back to Egypt in, uh, excuse me, verse 20. It says, and Moses took the staff of God in his hand. Now, there is a surprising emphasis on this staff in this chapter. This is the 13th reference to this stick of wood in this text. And what it started out as just, I mean, in my house, we have lots of these uh, sticks of wood that show up everywhere. They're so commonplace and ordinary. I find about a million of them in my garage at any given point in time from the boys collecting them and bringing them in. But they're just ordinary sticks of wood. So it's a surprising thing that you would see God take this staff. It could have been Moses' favorite staff that he had used as a shepherd for 40 years. Like this is his, his staff, his walking stick, what he uses to shepherd the sheep. And God takes Moses' staff and he turns it into a symbol of God's own power and authority by which he will work judgment in Egypt. And so when Moses enters his staff into the service of God, it no longer is Moses' staff, but God says it is the staff of God, right? That Moses took the staff of God into his hands. And in his essay that's titled No Little People, No Little Places, Francis Schaeffer uh, treats this staff, and he talks about a study that he wrote that calls God so used a stick of wood. And he catalogs all these ways that God uses this ordinary stick to work wonders in Egypt, 
and in the wilderness, how God brings about his salvation, invests this stick with being a symbol of his power and his authority. And his point is, if God can so use a stick of wood in the hands of, by the way, an octogenarian, right? We're talking about a stick of wood in the hands of a really old man, and God is working his wonders. Then Schaefer's point is, God delights in using things that are weak and seemingly ordinary to showcase his power and his glory. And if God could so use a stick of wood so that in his hands and in his service, it no longer is the staff of Moses, but the staff of God, then could could not God use you if you are consecrated to him? So his emphasis is there are no little people, no inordinately ungifted people. There are only consecrated people and unconsecrated people. And he places an emphasis on what God could do with you if you are consecrated to him. And so his piercing question for us that I'll start us with here this morning is, he says, am I the me of God? Have I become not just Ben, but the Ben of God, consecrated to him in his service for his purposes? And God granted through this ordinary staff that Moses would work these signs. We saw Eric treat this last week where Moses asked for these, uh, how, how will I know that they'll believe me? Or God, they won't believe me if I go. And in response to Moses' unbelief, God gives him signs by which he'll work these miracles that will bring about faith in God's people. And he uses this staff to do much of it. One, the staff turns into a snake and he grabs it by the tail and it's a reminder to the people of God that God would indeed bring judgment on the seed of the serpent. That God would bring about victory over the serpent for his people. Or the sign of leprosy where God showcases that he has the power to kill and the power to make alive and that he would bring life from the dead. Or when the Nile is turned to blood and he, he smites it with the stick and it's a picture of God bringing judgment on Egypt. Egypt had so come to rely on the Nile for their life that they had come to worship it. And so God would bring judgment to Egypt. And all of this if you're not overly familiar with the story, seems like foolishness. It seems like mythology, that God would so use a a shepherd's staff as a symbol of his power and authority, or that he would give signs to his people to help them believe. So here's where we have, you know, one foot planted at Calvary, where we see in the same way, it seems like foolishness to the world that God would demonstrate his power and authority, not in Christ's coming and securing physical world domination at his first coming, but that he would use his power to give up his life for his people and that he would secure victory for his people and salvation for his people in dying for them. And so Paul emphasizes this is the foolishness of the message of the cross that has become the sign of God's power and his authority, that the gospel is the power of God for all who believe. And yes, Jesus worked many miracles and signs in the days of his earthly life so that people would believe on him. And in the book of John, it says that 
all of these signs were written down so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing you may have life in his name. So we see God doing the same thing. He's working signs so that Israel would believe that Moses sent him to deliver them. And in Christ, he's working signs and wonders so that they would see that God's deliverer was here and that he was bringing them out of slavery into his life. But the Jews wanted to see signs like magic tricks. And so Paul makes clear that the sign that we need is the cross of Christ and how God raised him from the dead. This is the only sign that you need, and it is the sign that God has given to you so that you would know that Jesus is the Christ and that he has worked this great deliverance from God. Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians 1, 22 and 23. For the Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. So God sends us forth as ordinary consecrated people vested with the authority of God by his spirit and the power of God in his gospel to work his salvation. So Moses is a type and a picture of all God's people vested with the gospel of God. That may seem like foolishness to the world, but God uses it to work his power and his salvation for his people. But not all will have faith. And that's exactly what we see in this next thread in the following verses. So the, the next thread after the staff of God is the sovereignty of God. And look with me at verse 21. The Lord said to Moses... When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. So this is the first time that we actually read that the the miracles were not just for Israel. That they would believe on Moses. But they were actually also for Pharaoh so that God would demonstrate his power and his authority But throughout our study in Exodus, we're going to see this as a major theme that Pharaoh's heart is hardened against God and against the people of God. We already saw in chapter 3, verse 19, that God said that Pharaoh would not let them go unless he was compelled by a mighty hand. So that is true. Pharaoh in himself, hardened of heart, and refusing to let the people go, and he would not, he would not, unless compelled by a mighty hand. So throughout Exodus, we're going to read this. You're going to see there are times when it is said that Pharaoh hardens his own heart, and there are times that it is plain, like in our text this morning, that it is God who hardens his heart. And he does so, so that his glory might be displayed over Pharaoh And over the gods of Egypt. So it is God who forces Pharaoh's hand and moves him to let his people go at his appointed time. Uh, Over all the Exodus, God is in complete sovereign control. This is not a battle between two gods, as the God that Pharaoh worships and serves and Satan battling back and forth, refusing to let God's people go until God eventually sneaks a punch in. This is God sovereignly working his plan and his will. If Pharaoh hardens his heart, it is because God 
ordained that he would. And if Pharaoh's heart is softened so that he lets Israel go, it is because God was letting his people go. And God was opening up his hand to deliver his people. And so Israelites' exodus from Egypt was entirely God's doing. And God is completely sovereign over all that he has made. We already saw this last week in verse 11 in response to one of Moses' objections to God. Well, I'm not eloquent of words. And Eric and I were joking around about how Moses adds not not now while I'm talking to you and not before this. And he's basically saying, God, I don't think you're understanding what I'm saying. I must not being, uh, be being eloquent with you now because you're not understanding. I don't want to go. I'm not eloquent. I don't want to say these things. And God's response to him was, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? So God is exalting himself as he is the one who makes people blind. He is the one who makes people deaf. If you see, it is a gift of God. If you hear, it is a gift of God. And so he is the one who works all things according to his will with perfect wisdom, with perfect love and kindness and grace and justice. And so he is the one who sets up this holy war that we will see in Exodus between God and the evil one, between God and the seed of the serpent who came as an enemy against God's people. And God hardens his heart, this is important, without being in any way complicit in Pharaoh's wickedness. God is just and good. And he is sovereign and wise. This is not merely God knowing beforehand that Pharaoh would harden his heart, but God ordained that Pharaoh would refuse to let his people go. And Pharaoh acted as God ordained with complete responsibility for his actions. Uh, David, our resident theologian, informed me before this message that this is called concurrence, right? This is this doctrine of God ordaining the acts of men with us having a real choice that we are really responsible for, all, all the while God is working his sovereign will. And I read somewhere this week, this paradox of divine sovereignty and human responsibility is not a puzzle to be solved, but a mystery to be adored. As human beings made in the image of God, we make a real choice to accept or reject God. But even the choice we make is governed by God's sovereign and eternal will. This is what Paul writes of in Romans 9 when he refers back to this moment in the Exodus. And he says, the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up. This is God speaking to Pharaoh. That I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. So we have to see this morning how much God prizes his glory and the exaltation of his name in all the earth. He raises up Pharaoh so that he might demonstrate to all the earth his power and his glory and his salvation. And 
we see from this text that God is under no obligation to grant mercy to Pharaoh or he's under no obligation to grant mercy to us. This is part of that perspective shift that we were talking about this morning. I I was living with this mentality that God owed me power. He owed me electricity. He owed me a working snowblower that that I get so accustomed to the mercies of God and the grace of God that I feel entitled to them. You have lived your whole life under such mercies from God that the concept of God not showing someone mercy seems so unjust and wrong to you that we actually have failed to remember the definition of mercy, which is not getting what you deserve. And so we actually deserve from God that he would harden our hearts and that he would not show us mercy. And until we believe that, this will just be the content for arguments among people that have too much time on their hands. But if you really believe that you deserve the judgment of God for your sin against God, for your failure to glorify God as you ought, then you will glory in his mercy. And we have to have this resolute confidence that God is just and he only acts in his justice unless he chooses by Christ to show mercy. I read this week that in Jeremiah 17, verse 10, God says, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways according to the fruit of his deeds. And if you read that carefully, you'll see that God acts with perfect justice. And that is a terrifying prospect for everyone, if you are honest with yourself. For God to actually test your heart and test your mind and to render to you according to your deeds is a terrifying prospect unless he, by Christ, show you mercy. So I I want you to meditate on this, church, because I I think before I got to this point, and last night God just gripped me with it fresh. I went from like preparing a message that I hope was helpful to you to being captivated and falling on my face before God. Because you just consider this. He would not have been unjust to harden your heart and to give you what you deserve. He would have been completely within the bounds of his justice and his glory to let you go your way. In your self-exaltation, in your hatred of Christ, into thinking that you had just enough of God. He could have made you a vessel of wrath, displaying his glory only in his judgments against you. And instead, this is this amazing love Tis mercy all that instead he gave you Christ. Instead of his just anger, he gives you Jesus. And now he works all things for the glory of his name and for your good as his children. And that's what we see in our next thread in our tapestry is that we've seen how the surprising nature of his salvation and the staff of God, and we've seen the sovereignty of God, but now we turn to the sonship of God. 
when he's talking about, talking to Moses of what he should say to Pharaoh, he says, thus says the Lord, first time that's used in the Bible. This is the first prophetic, thus says the Lord, of the whole entire canon. And he says, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. So this is stunning on multiple levels. This is the first time that God references Israel to be his son, not merely servants, not merely his subjects. God is revealing that at his heart, God who has dwelt from all of eternity as the father of the son is at his heart a father. And so at the heart of the Exodus is the Father coming after those whom he's choosing to set his love on and bring into his family, and he's delivering them from their oppression so that they might live with him as his children. In Hosea 11, verse 1, God says, When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. Israel being the son of God explains in some measure the severity of God's judgment against Pharaoh. You consider the level of justice or vengeance that you would take, even being evil by comparison to God, over someone if your children were endangered or oppressed. It does, yes, show that Pharaoh's heart would be so hardened as to need this event that we will read of in Exodus 11 where God would actually kill the firstborn in Egypt. And that would be what it took for him to deliver his people and for Pharaoh to let them go. But in a real way, this was son for son, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, son for son. Pharaoh had captured God's son and denied God and his fatherhood and exalted himself as God over them and called himself their master. And so God would take vengeance on him and deliver his son by inflicting justice against the sons of Egypt. So this Exodus account is God acting in power to rescue his son so that they might be free and live with him as their father in his presence. And it is of great theological significance that God does not say, out of Egypt I call my sons, but my son, singular. Now this title for son of God in the word of God, it's different than just how we think of Jesus as the eternal son of the father from all of eternity, right? So we know there's God the father, God the son, God the Holy Spirit. But the title son of God is used in God's word to refer to God's representatives on the earth of his authority, under his authority. So in that way, uh, Adam is referred to as the son of God. He is the ruler of the earth, an extension or a vice regent of God's authority, and he is made to rule and exercise dominion over the earth under God's good authority. And that's where Adam failed. He failed as God's son in being the man that God intended for mankind to be in seizing rule for himself. 
And in the same way, Israel is said to be God's son, his representative in the world, exercising his authority, being imaging God in the world, being a blessing as God blesses them, and they too failed to be the son that God called them to be. And again, David, a representative of Israel, is called the son of God. Him, the ruler of the kings of the earth, exercising authority in the world, in the kingdom that God called to be his own, and he was made to be a reflection of God's good rule in the earth. And David, too, failed to be the son that God had called him to be. And so what does God do? He sends the one that all of these sons were pointing to in sending his son, Jesus Christ, to be the last Adam, the true man. Man as God intended for man to be. Perfectly imaging God, perfectly ruling over his world under the authority of God. And we, we know that uh, Israel was a picture of Christ in this way, an imperfect picture, because when God brings Jesus out of Egypt, he says, as it is written, out of Egypt I called my son. So Israel's bondage in Egypt and Jesus' uh, time in Egypt mirror each other in This is meant to show us that where Israel failed, Jesus overcame as the head of a new humanity to be the son and to be the man that God called mankind to be. Jesus fulfilled all the covenant requirements of God's people and was the well-pleasing son, and he did it all so that you and I might become actual sons of God, actual children of God. And so this salvation of God in Christ was a father sending a son into the world to bring many sons into the glory of his presence in the same way that he's bringing Israel out like children of the father so that they might be with their father in his presence. It was all a foreshadowing of the true son coming into the world and bringing us out of our bondage to sin and slavery in ourselves so that we might live with the Father in his presence as his children. So Ephesians 1, verse 4 through 6, kind of encapsulates all these threads that we've seen so far in one brief passage. He he has called us to be sons, and it says that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world so that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, God predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Why? To the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. This is the perspective shift that we need, that we were formerly far off and strangers to the covenants and promises of God, but God brought us near by his blood. And it wasn't because of works that we've done in righteousness or our own wisdom and our desire to choose God, but that he in love set his affections on us and he chose to bring you to himself. And everywhere in Ephesians 1 where it references God calling us to himself or predestining us to adoption as sons, it says the purpose of all of it is so that you would fall on your face and praise him for grace. None of us deserves 
to be the children of God. He acted in mercy and in love to draw you to himself. And it was all, all of grace. The next thread that we see, strange as it first seems, points us to this faith that is in Jesus, by which we become children of God. So we've seen the staff of God, the sovereignty of God, the sonship of God, and now the seal of God. And this is weird. This is a weird, it's a weird paragraph. You ready? I'm going to read it again. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. And, then it, was, and it was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. Now, this is jarring and strange and hard to understand. And there are a, a lot of commentaries that go a lot of different ways with it. And we're going to focus on the plain things that are the main things that I believe God wants us to see from this. First of all, is it not shocking? We, th- we feel like things are going so well, right? God has shown Moses miraculous mercy, way more mercy than you've ever shown to any of your children ever in the midst of all of his excuse making. And he just keeps coming over the top and consoling Moses in the midst of his excuses and giving him signs and giving him what he needs to be merciful to him and to help him. And then all of a sudden, it says that God tries to kill him. God seeks to put him to death. And this should surprise us. It feels like things were going so well. It feels like Moses should have been put to death a couple of times in chapter 4, and you kept showing him mercy. And now, seemingly out of the blue, for reasons that aren't fully explained, it seems like God is wanting to put Moses to death. What is clear is that God is seeking to kill him because he failed to circumcise his son. So, Focusing on the main things. Moses had failed as a father to honor the mark of the covenant that God gave to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He, he gave them circumcision as a seal of his covenant with them to set them and their offspring apart as his people. So circumcision then was like baptism today, a proof of sonship in the covenant community. And it was a marker of membership in the covenant community. And so this is how we show that we have been made new, right? That you have been made new and brought by faith into the covenant community of God. And scripture is clear that without the shedding of blood, there's no covenant. So Christ shed his blood to create a new covenant in his blood. But without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. This is what this was a picture of. So Moses, in the scriptures, is a picture of the law. He's referenced almost like a euphemism to what you can do in your own strength to achieve the righteousness of God by your own works. And so this is a picture that Moses, even Moses and his son, had to be subject to the righteousness of God that comes through faith in Christ. And circumcision was a sign or a mark of being part of that covenant community that was on the basis of faith. So God would not have a deliverer who disregarded obedience to his commands 
or who undervalued the picture of God cutting away self and putting in our place of our hearts of stone new hearts and new creations. Now, God, even in this, was showing him mercy. When it says God sought to put him to death, he was doing it in a way that provided for his repentance. If God truly sought to put him to death, he could not be thwarted, and it would have been immediate. But he, he sought to put him to death in a way that provoked this repentance and the opportunity to remedy the situation. But what we need to see in the main takeaway from this paragraph is that God's anger towards Moses was turned away only by the shedding of blood. And that in, in this way, this instance served as a foreshadowing of the deliverance from the judgment of God that comes by the shedding of blood from a substitute in your place. That is what even this strange instance that seemingly so confusing is a picture of a covenant that would be made in your place so that blood would be shed as a propitiation for you and that the anger of God is averted while God's wrath is satisfied by the blood. In Romans 3, we read the fullness of what this picture shows us. In verse 23 and 20 through 25, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So all these threads are there, that God is giving you faith as a gift, and it's faith in the propitiatory sacrifice of Christ as he offers himself in our place so that we could be forgiven and freed and adopted as children. And we are born not of the will of our own flesh, but of the will of God. All of this leads to the service of God. This is what God was after the whole time. Let my people go that they may serve me, that they may worship me. And so Moses, along the way, is met by Aaron. God gives him Aaron as a mouthpiece, like he said he would. And Moses and Aaron do these signs for Israel. And what, how did the people respond? If you've read the book of Exodus before, it is truly shocking how they respond. Because we know the unbelief that will characterize these same people throughout the rest of their lives. But the people believed and bow low and they worship. Everything that Moses had feared about not entering the service of God was unsubstantiated. God had laid low his fears completely and revealed that Moses had only to trust him. So I want to close in with this kind of recap, calling you to rest in these truths. We're talking about having our perspective changed and being reoriented to the grace of God so we would marvel at God's gift of his choice to show us kindness and to bring us into his family. So rest in these truths. One, God has made a way for us to be delivered from his wrath and made children by the blood of Christ offered in our place. Two, we were born not of our own will, but of the will of God. 
Christ died to bring us to the Father so that we might know and rest in the Father's love and care for us and so that we might worship him and live forever with him as our God and us, his people. And three, God will work his salvation for his people and he'll use ordinary consecrated people and an extraordinary gospel to do it. And so our lives should be marked by humility and gratitude that God would call us to himself as his children, that this, this mercy of God should shape our gratitude and our joy in our daily life when we get away from feeling entitled to grace and we afresh fall on our face in gratitude for it. It will completely change our, our joy and the way that we worship God with awe and with reverence. And our lives should be marked by faith and confidence that God will work his sovereign will. And last, our lives should be marked by this great surrender, being willing to be used of God, to be the you of God, consecrated to him, being willing to be used of him to work his salvation for his people as you play your part in the body and you do what he's called you to do, gifted how he's called you to serve to build up the body in love and as he arms you with his gospel to go out into all the world so that he might show mercy on whom he will. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for your glorious grace that you have lavished on us in Christ. Indeed, it is by grace through faith that we have been saved, not of ourselves. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, lest anyone should boast. But all of your salvation is all of grace and all of your mercy. I pray that you would remind us, refresh our heart in these truths so that we might offer to you a real acceptable worship that we might have glad and thankful hearts, that we would not feel entitled to your gifts or to your blessings, but that we would stand in awe of you. There is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. Father, praise you for adopting us as your own children. Would you please give us grace to be sanctified in the truth of your word and to be consecrated to you for your purposes. Thank you that you have ordained to use us for your namesake. Please, God, give us grace to yield to you. And would you use our church to make Jesus known in all the earth. We pray it for the glory of your name. Amen.